Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Hour two of this program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Tell you love her today with metal and recycling. Uh, North Star Metal Recycling at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. They recycle. You get paid, finally, as we kick off hour two. Why don't you pen a love letter to Kintech, Jason? Oh, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. They are Canada's favorite, most beloved orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews, 1,500 hugs, five-star hugs. Find your perfect fit. At Kintech.net. We're going to take a brief respite, brief reprieve from the hockey talk. We're going to go now to the phone lines. We are joined once again by NFL.com's Nick Shook here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Nick. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We're good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. So we're now 48 hours removed from the Super Bowl. We spent a lot of time yesterday talking about the impact, the legacies made, the aftermath. I thought it was interesting on NFL.com that you looked at something and wrote you know, thoroughly about something that we didn't spend enough time on yesterday, quite frankly, and that is the comeback. And not just the comeback that the Chiefs had in that Super Bowl, but how it's kind of cooked into their DNA, and it almost feels like this team, I don't say they need a kickstart or need to get going, but it seems like they really know how to play their best football, and specifically – Patrick, Patrick Mahomes know how to play some of his best football when they're trailing, when they don't necessarily have the lead. And I know you dove into the numbers a little bit deeper. What did you find here, Nick? I mean, really, it's it's, it's the lack of a sense of urgency or, or uh, you know, playing a little almost too tight. That's really what Patrick Mahomes focused on after the game, which is talking about how basically he and his, you know, offense, his offensive teammates, and even on the defensive side of the ball as well, because there were some mental errors too. They just were playing, you know, they let the, the moment kind of get to them. You know, they didn't have their compo- composure quite where they wanted it to be. And, um, and you know, they spoke about that in the locker room. You know, why do we play this game? You know, why do we work so hard to get here? You know, enjoy it. Enjoy the moment because it doesn't last very long. So I thought that was a big part of, of it. Um, Numbers-wise, it was, um, I mean, it was almost a perfect cat from Patrick Mahomes. Now, he didn't put up a ton of yards. You know, he was under 100, but they converted. They got, you know, a short fields and, or they, you know, got advantageous situations in terms of, uh, you know, uh, where, where their drives began, and 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 they 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 capitalized. You know, the Kadarius Tony sixty-five yard punt return sets up, you know, the touchdown, and and they really only needed to go down the field once uh, before the final drive of the game for them to, you know, make an impact. And and it was one of those games. It was so strange because you know, being in the stadium and being there halftime, you know, Rihanna was great and everything, but a lot of people were like. Man, is this going to turn into a blowout? Because you know <laughs> the Eagles hit halftime, you know, on a, on a quality note. They looked like they were starting to, you know, gain control of the game. And instead of, you know, running away with it, you know, Patrick Mahomes very quickly leads them right down the field. They get a, a you know, a few key plays, and suddenly they have the lead. And that's just that's kind of who they are. That's what they did against the 49ers in the Super Bowl. Something similar. Um, and you know, I know they built the lead in the AFC Championship game, but. At the same time, they still had to go from having a tie game to go win it. So that's just who they are. And, and, and of course, it leads to another title for them. Will the Eagles feel like they gave their best effort? I, I, I have to imagine that people in Philadelphia, Eagles included, have to feel like they want this one back. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I think the effort was there. You saw the effort in Jalen Hurts. I mean, this guy was on his way to a – a very, very memorable for a Super Bowl MVP performance. I mean, that that doesn't take away from what he did, but 
defensively, man, they were in shambles in the second half. So I'm sure they would look back and say, you know, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. It's it's way more than just James Bradbury with a little tug of the jersey, yeah. you know, late in the game. There were a lot of opportunities to make plays and that they didn't make. And Darius Slay getting fooled by pre-snap motion in, a, in an, uh, an un-veteran-like move, even though he is a veteran player who's usually better than that. Um, I, I feel like they got caught in a situation where Andy Reid just, you know, and, and Eric Bieniemy just had one step ahead on them, and it, and it was kind of actually kind of visible in the first half too, just the way they were setting things up. But second half, man, they they knew exactly how to kind of manipulate that defense. Um, so I think their efforts always there, and, and, and I do feel like they're going to wish that they had had this one back because they were in a great position to go win another title, and they and they, just, they didn't. Um, I want to talk about Andy Reid for a minute here. A lot of the focus has been on Patrick Mahomes, like rightly so. It was a phenomenal performance, especially in the second half. But you alluded to the fact that uh, it was Reid and Biennemi that really orchestrated how they were able to score on every single possession that they had in the second half. It was a really a remarkable play-calling feat from those two. But uh, Reid, now you were there when he was doing his post-game presser. How emphatically did he shoot down retirement talk? Oh, it was it was pretty strong. Yeah. I think we can put that very much to bed. I, I don't think he's interested in that, at least not at this point. Um, you know, after you know, toward the end of the press conference, they were like, you know, it had they kind of wanted to clarify one of the other media members there, and he's like, he stopped and he's just like, you know, I mean, <laughs> if they'll have me, I'll be here. Like, like I'm not interested in walking away. I love doing this. Look what we just did. We just had another comfort behind winning the Super Bowl. And by the way there's really no reason for me to want to walk away other than age because we're on the way up, which is crazy to say after you won your second Super Bowl in four years, but it's true. They got a ton of picks. They got young talent on that team. They've kind of done the roster turnover thing overnight, you know, not across the board, but uh, if you look on that roster, I mean, last year it was re- rebuilding the offensive line and finding you know, studs like Nick Bolden, the linebacker who obviously made a huge play. The, the, the composition of this team has really taken place under the radar in the last few years. There's no reason for him to consider, to consider retirement. So he was very, very strong on that. Do you think uh, Andy Reid's offensive coordinator, Eric Bieniemy, will be back with the Chiefs, or is he finally going to get a head coach job? Well, this has been a, an annual conversation for God, probably about almost four years now, maybe longer, actually, now that I think about it. And I, I think that games like the Sundays prove why he's been a continuous candidate in the in head coaching circles i know that we have not filled every job yet um it'll be interesting to see uh that he has not moved on yet to this point i know that even last year we talked about you know it, it was kind of under the radar a little bit but you know re- renewing a deal uh so it's hard to not see that pairing continue if he doesn't get hired by someone else uh i, I mean the way that they they schemed up that game really all four quarters but especially in the second two yeah, it's either a great way to go out or just another example of how you know effective that partnership is. So that's that's a question that I I can't honestly tell you one way or the other whether if he'll be back. But I mean, in terms of performance, I, I don't see why not. Do you think it's possible that he could get poached to another team, not to become their head coach, but to be paid paid a lot of money to be their offensive coordinator? Um. Yeah. Potentially. I. I it, that makes more sense. I think to me. I'm just. I, you know. There's. There remains a few questions as to why you know he's he's gone through a number of of head coaching cycles and and been interviewed and hasn't gotten the job yet and you know it's that's something that I'll probably never know or I'll maybe know at some point but he clearly has an understanding of an offense that other teams have been trying to mimic 
that has won two Super Bowls in four years, that has capitalized on you know a certain type of talent, especially at receiver or tight end, and really maximized it. And of course, the the catalyst to all that is Patrick Mahomes. But I just, I mean, this, that was one of the Super Bowls where you look back and you look at offensive schemes, and it's not, you know, the Philly special just catching the Patriots by surprise in right. a key moment. It's it, it was the entire second half, and it was really almost the entire game. They just they were a half step or one step ahead of them the entire time where they're, they're setting up things. You know, they, they, they benefit from an off, uh, a, an offside penalty on, on the Eagles. And when they tried to run a quick little screen pass or, you know, a little swing pass, that was kind of like a bubble out wide off of pre-snap motion. The same very next play, they run the same play, but instead of throwing the swing pass, which Philly bites on Mahomes makes a little bit of a pump fake there, finds Juju down the sideline for a big gain. And it was like, I mean, they had them on a string. They were doing whatever they wanted to do. And this is one of the best defenses in the NFL, a defense that, you know, was five sacks away from breaking the all-time record for most sacks as a defense in a single season, got none, and didn't really get any pressure until that pivotal play that, that, you know, resulted in the holding call. And, I mean, it's a credit to, you know, the way the offense, I think, was designed and also how Patrick Mahomes is such a special player because there were, there were times where he was the only quarterback who's getting out of, the, out of that pressure situation. Uh, but it, it it's just um, it was just a remarkable to see from the end zone view. You know, you're you're watching like it's on film and and just seeing how they're all this pre snap you know misdirection and everything yeah. where it's even hard to kind of track the ball and everything else. <laughs> it was just a masterful performance in terms of scheme. I was just I was blown away even within that you know in that moment. Nick, what was up with the field? Of the Super Bowl, it was was it was that a sod issue like a turf issue or was it? painted so much that it was slippery out there or was it a bit of both i mean it was uh it was not ideal and you'd you'd expect something better considering that this is a uh you know this is arizona it's not hard to you know grow turf there they've got a few golf courses in the area and the turf is pretty good there um i'm just wondering how uh, how it got so bad out there yeah, you know, I was down there before the game, and I was watching some guys. I mean, I, I was walking out in, in your typical, like, dress shoes, right? And I, I thought, I was like, man, it feels kind of short, you know? Like, almost almost just a little tiny bit too short or too – it felt like, um, you know, those those putting paths or the small putting greens people have inside their home sometimes? Yeah. It felt like that. It felt like it was – you talk about golf courses being the area. I mean, it wasn't as short as a putting green, but it kind of had that consistency to it, to where um, it looked like it belonged on a fairway and not on a football field. It's just as if you know, I watched guys kind of kicking up chunks in pregame, thinking, you know, that's a little unusual uh, at this point. Now, obviously, some of them are testing it, you know, trying to make sure that they can get their footing, but it just felt it felt like the type that wasn't necessarily perfect for cleat usage, you know, the, the, like a football cleat usage. So I think that, you know, and, and there was a lot of promotion of this is like supposedly the best grass ever and everything else. I don't know if it passed the test for football. It's just plain and simple. I, I don't know if it did because I think that sometimes when you paint stuff, it does have an effect, but it wasn't like it was congealed or anything like that. It, it was, uh, I think it was more, it was an interesting turf. And that was the first time I've been to that stadium. Um, so I, I didn't have any point of reference to think like, oh, well, this field, this grass that they grew here is a little bit different than the one before, but. This is not a stadium that typically has bad turf uh, because they can roll the field in. They grow it outside. They roll it in. They can grow a second field. They've done that between, 
you know, bowl games and playoff games in the past, you know, way back to the Fiesta Bowl. Or, or, I mean, they had the, the Fiesta Bowl and then the BCS national title game there, you know, 10, 10 or so years ago. So and I don't I don't think it's um, a lack of availability to grow a field. I, I would be curious to see how they proceed um, with that specific type of turf, which got a lot of attention prior, and see if they use it again or not. We're speaking to Nick Shook from NFL.com here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, we mentioned Eric Bieniemy and his possibility of getting a job. There's only, if I'm not mistaken, one head coaching job left now, and that's in Arizona because the losing offensive coordinator from the Super Bowl, and that's Philadelphia Eagles OC Shane Steichen, uh, just accepted the Indianapolis head coaching job uh, today. That was announced about an hour ago. Now, this is an interesting dynamic here because, uh, one, the Colts aren't going to retain Jeff Saturday. I think that was pretty much a given after how badly the season ended for the Colts. But two, they're running it back with the same idea of getting an offensive coordinator from the Eagles because this is what they did with Frank Reich in 2018. Uh, how do you see this playing out for Steichen in Indianapolis? Well, I think the the Saturday thing wasn't quite as much of a given as you think. Just because the way they drew out that process, there was some belief it was like he's Jim Irsay is going to draw this out to the point where they're going to hire Jeff Saturday again, you know, bring him back. Um, it's it's an interesting move. Uh, I was pretty convinced that this is going to be the last coaching opening available um, because of the, the pace at which they were operating. I think that Steigen's done. He, he's another guy that's been on a pretty rapid ascent through the coaching ranks. Um, but at the same time, you see why when your offense performs the way it did this year. Uh, it's going to be interesting because they don't have the pieces that the Eagles had, you know, this, this especially this past season. Um, they don't have a quarterback. Uh, they have a lead bat, running back who is more of a traditional runner than he is uh, somebody who would fit in the way the Eagles offense operates. Not saying that he can't, but um, it, it'll look differently. And they, I think more than anything, they need pieces. And maybe it was just because they looked at their offense this year and thought, wow, we were downright dreadful. But I think they need to be looking at their roster more necessarily than their coach because I mean, I, I knew Frank Reich was basically going to be canned because of how bad they were, but I don't think it was really as much his fault as it was a, a lack of tools, you know? How are you going to ask a guy to go, you know, unscrew a, a Phillips head screw when you don't have a Phillips head screwdriver? You know, that's just kind of how right, it felt right. for some of the season with them last year. So uh, I think it's on the front office as much as anything to to, to put Styson in the best possible situation uh, to succeed early, and, and I think they got quite a challenge ahead of them for sure. Uh, you mentioned that they're going to need a quarterback there, and I think that they're maybe are done with the recycled veteran QB program. I think they may want to opt out of that now because it hasn't yielded results in a while. Um, if you had to guess right now, what do the Colts do at quarterback? Do they address it at the draft, or do they maybe dip into free agency, maybe look at a guy like Derek Carr, who clearly isn't interested in being traded. He wants to be released and then control his own process and sign where he chooses. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like that's been the best marriage since Carr was benched, basically. And it became clear that he was going to be gone. He was no longer going to be a Raider after this year. I, I, I just, It just made a lot of sense. Um, and, and I think that there are going to be players in that. Derek, by the way, is smart for not accepting a trade anywhere, including New Orleans. Um, and I think that you're going to see them approach it in both ways, potentially. Because, you know, it, it's it's not the best situation for them to pick a quarterback because you know, I mean, they've they've learned in in recent years how giving up too much capital can cost you. You know, trying to go get Carson Wentz and that blows up in their face. And and, and drafting a rookie is 
kind of a similar risk. In fact, it might be more risky. So I think that they, they go through free agency first and try to find a guy, and then maybe this is the year they make the pick. I mean, Derek Carr is not old, and, and in the right situation, he's played well in the past in his career. So, I mean, if if I'm looking at it from strictly a Colts perspective, and they're there, you're thinking we got to go get a guy in free agency now. We we can think, wonder about drafting a guy long-term. We should, but we got to go get a guy now. And and I think it's a combination of the fact that they believe that they can be a contending team. I, roster-wise, I don't really know. Offensively, especially, played pretty well defensively. You know, it was quiet season in terms of talking about them, but they had a pretty good defensive season as a group. Um, but they, they, they've just kind of dilly-dallied so much of this in the last few years. they got to go get a guy. It's, it's for much as much fan you know response and positivity as it is about being a contending team. He's not the only guy they got to go get. Quarterback is not the only guy they got to go get in this team. I think they need to add some weapons as well. And maybe that's how they direct their, their draft, is they get their quarterback in free agency and then go forward. But I think everything is on the table for them because they got to have an answer there. So the NFL season has officially come to a close. And with that, Nick, we wanted to thank you an awful lot for all you did for the show this year. It was great getting you on with regularity to talk all things NFL. We really thoroughly appreciate it. Uh, probably won't do this for a little bit now, but hopefully we can circle back closer to free agency in the draft. And again, just wanted to thank you for all your hard work this year. We really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's been a, a pleasure and a joy every week is the madness of the NFL. You know, I did the numbers a couple of weeks ago. I realized that we take up now half of more than half of the calendar year. It grew it's like 28 weeks from the start of preseason <laughs> all the way to the end. And, uh, it's a marathon, but uh, it, it makes it a lot uh, easier to uh, power through with talking to you guys. So, you know, I don't think we realize Combine's right around the corner. Yep. <laughs> before you know, we're going to be looking forward to the upcoming season. So I'm sure I'll hear from you before long. Thanks, buddy. We really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Uh, Nick Shook from NFL.com here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. So in the other uh, football league, the CFL, the news today is that the CFL has taken over control of the Montreal Alouettes. Um, they have engaged an investment bank to try and sell the team. And here's the statement from the CFL. Multiple parties have already expressed serious interest in purchasing the Alouettes, including individuals, groups, and businesses that reside or operate in Montreal or elsewhere in Quebec. Um, this is once again putting Randy Ambrosi, the CFL commissioner, uh, under the spotlight and not in a great way. Uh, the, Al- the the Alouettes were only just sold in January of 2020, and they were sold to a gentleman by the name of Sid Spiegel, who was 89 years old at the time and has since passed away. Mm-hmm. The co-owner, co-owner was his son-in-law, Gary Stern, and now Gary Stern, I guess, has n- no more interest in owning the team. Uh, probably because he's losing a lot of money. And also I think Sid Spiegel's estate, which is run by some lawyers, and I think he's got most of the team, are also saying we're not putting any more money into this. Yes, that's correct. So the CFL has taken it over. And there's a lot of criticism to the commissioner for selling to this group in the first place. They might have offered the most money in the sale, but again, Sid Spiegel was almost 90 years old when he was sold the team. Yeah. So in, in one of the reports it actually states, and I don't know whether this was for dramatic effect or not, but it says uh, Spiegel bought the team in 2020 at the mm-hmm. age of 90 passed away shortly thereafter, having never seen the team play football because of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. So I guess it was, uh, 
an illustrative point as to how short and maybe ill-fitting the ownership was because yeah. it didn't combine with lot- some bad luck of the pandemic. Yeah, but it just didn't make a lot of sense. They also are operating without a team president right mm-hmm. now, yeah. and the criticism that has come. Uh, at the feet of Randy Ambrosi and the CFL is how did you let this go this long without formally addressing it? Because free agency is like a week away. Yeah. And Danny Alouettes are screwed. Danny Machocha is the general manager. And they've said, you've heard anecdotally stories coming out of Montreal where players are saying, I can't commit to anything here because Mm -hmm. they can't commit anything to me. So you're going to go into a free agency period where you might not be able to fill out an active roster. And you can't just let that kind of situation fester to the point where, You've got a team that has a head coach and a general manager and nothing else. It's a real problem. And for a, a league that has s- uh, only a small handful of teams operationally, it's really damaging when one of them can't operate. It's sad, too, because the, Alou- the Alouettes were huge in Germany. Like and, when the CFL went global. Yeah, and, growing, know, so a, and growing a foothold in Tahiti. They yeah. love the Alouettes in Tahiti. I, I don't know if they'll ever be able to recover from this. Greg Wyshynski is going to join us next on the Alfred and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. The most comprehensive Canucks coverage in the city. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff in the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, hour two of this show, we are right in the midst of it. It's brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. To the phone lines we go now. Always fun to be joined by our next guest. It is Greg Wyshynski from ESPN here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Wish. How are you? I'm fine. I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I can't, uh, I can't complain. I had to get up early because uh, my... Uh, brownstones uh, uh, not in uh, compliance with the fire extinguisher laws, according to my insurance company. So I had to walk around with a man to put in fire extinguishers. I mean, I just I just fill up a measuring cup with water in case there's a fire. I was going to say. I guess you need like devices, though. <laughs> this is a very interesting look into, uh, I guess, New York real estate and how things work. In that, are you like on the strata council or something? Is this why, you, or is this just every unit has to do this? No, it, well, there's there's four apartments. We're in like a co-op, right? Okay. So it's like it's like we all work together, and then like you know, dude came by, and and you know, you need to get the big old fire extinguishers because sometimes you, you get inspected and they don't like what they see. And and again, I mean, by that I mean, hey, use that red device that was invented for the purposes of putting out fires instead. I kid you not, we had a. a a barrel of sand next to the boiler, which again, I don't think is necessarily in compliance with what they're looking for, but we had like a barrel of sand. So it's like if the boiler explodes, I guess we go down, down there with like a, a kitty litter scooper and just start throwing sand on it, which is like what you do in like 1910, probably. <laughs> Hey, Wish, I, I'm just looking at your... Uh, this is why people love this show. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say, this is why people love this show. There's no telling where it's going to go. Um, Wish, I'm just looking at your latest article where you asked an uh, anonymous panel of NHL players and team execs for their top 10 at each position, and you started with the goalies. Um, who was number one, and were there any surprises within the group? 
There is a couple, and thanks for, for noting that. So this is a project we first did in, in 2021. Um, it's, again, like it's an anonymous panel of NHL, current NHL players. It's an anonymous panel of executives. We've got three GMs, three coaches, player personnel people in there. And the point of it is, is like, okay, here's a chance for you to be candid. Give us your surveys. You know, you don't have to justify it. Just let us know, like, who your top tens are at each position. And and it's revelatory because it strips away media narrative. It strips away, you know, what the fans say. It's just what the people inside the game are thinking. And sometimes what they're thinking is dumb. Like, for example, putting John Gibson on this list. <laughs> it's like I, I stepped into a time machine and traveled back in time four years. Um, as someone said, it's kind of a relief that Carey Price didn't make it, uh, but he did not. So number one on the list is Andre Vasilevsky. Uh, had all but uh, two of the first place votes. Um, he's the king, man. Like, uh, there, there's some people coming for his throne, like Shurkin, who's second. Hellebuck was third. Sorokin, fourth. But, I mean, I mean, the vast majority of the, of the people that we surveyed uh, put Vasilevsky first. And, and, and it's hard to argue. I mean, like, he's got the regular season numbers. Um, obviously, like, wins is kind of a weird stat. If you actually ask the goalie community, there's probably more respect put on it than outside the goalie community. Um, but it's, it's the fact that his postseason numbers are completely off the charts in their three runs to the, to the cup final and, and two victories that I think really is the differentiator between him and, and the, the goalies right behind him. As a, Canadian, as a Canadian, these lists always make me nervous because it's a lot of Russians, Americans, Swedes, but there was <laughs> one Canadian that barely made the cut at number 10, Carter Hart. How has he been this year in Philly? I haven't really noticed or I haven't been paying attention all that much to the Flyers except if Tort says something. Um, has, I, I know he started out really well. Has, has he been able to maintain that level of play? First of all, you know that's not true. You know you also pay attention to see what Tony D'Angelo's up to. Come on, oh, be yeah. honest. Yeah, I love um, arguing about that stuff on Twitter. It's so much fun. It's, it's isn't it the best? Yeah, and sometimes best. you yeah. even end up on Breitbart. I, I actually, so, I actually just leave that to you. I like, wish will take care of this. That. All right. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a real canary in a wingnut coal mine um, in that regard. So, anyways, <laughs> so Carter Hart's a really interesting case, and I was actually happy to see him make this list because. Um, he's had a really strong bounce back season. Um, if you, if you ask around the flyers, Carter Hart's one of these guys that did not handle the pandemic. Well, like the isolation of it, he was a young player, you know, a lot of that stuff that these guys went through. And it's a lot of, 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 of mental health stuff that I think we have sort of moved past, but in, in that stretch of like two years, it was really hard on some of these guys. And he was one of them. And he kind of lost his thread and lost his game, and he's gotten it back this season. And, you know, wherever John Tortorella goes, the goalies get better. But what's interesting about Carter Hart is that he's not necessarily been the beneficiary of a defensive system. His numbers are better than the Flyers' numbers at five-on-five vis-a-vis expected goals. So um, he's actually out kicking his coverage a little bit on his Tortorella team, and it's good to see because I think he's got the tools – to be the franchise goalie that the Flyers have been searching for since, I don't know, like Ron Ekstall, it feels like. Uh, and I'm happy to see him have the season that he's had. Jacob Markstrom made it at number eight. And I guess I wasn't surprised that he made the list, but I think it's interesting to note that two of his three seasons in Calgary have been pretty disappointing. His first one, 
His save percentage was 904, which at the time, I mean, in today's, <laughs> that might be okay, but at the time that was below average. Last season, obviously, during the regular season, he was great, but in the playoffs, especially against the Oilers, he was not. And a lot of people joked that Jacob Markstrom or the Edmonton Oilers broke Jacob Markstrom because he has <laughs> not been good this season and he was uh, in the spotlight again last night in Ottawa when he wasn't able to uh, bar the door and um, protect a lead against the Ottawa Senators. The Sens scored twice late in the game with, uh, with the empty net and then won it in overtime. And I think if you look at the analytics in Calgary, the team is playing quite well. They're just not getting the goaltending from Jacob Markstrom. Right. And, and so I think the roller coaster of it all maybe landed him on the list that he still has some people that support him. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you, man. Like, if you just go based on his play this season, it's hard to defend it. It's, it's, it's hard to say that he belongs in the top 10 goaltenders in this league based on how he's performed this season. Um, and and I, I agree with you. Like, when he went 904 in Calgary after that signing that big contract, you're like, all right, what's going on here? But I think his place on this list <clears throat> is indicative of a bigger revelation from this ranking, which is that there are like six good goalies. <laughs> it's like the yeah. top six on this list are the six good goalies. And then you can kind of like fill in the rest however you, you feel like it. And, and I'm, not in, I'm not really including Linus Allmark in, in those six, by the way. Like I'm, it's been one great season. I have every reason to believe he's going to be good beyond this season. But, but let's, let's just say that, you know, we need a, a bit more proof of concept. Um, but once you get past, you know, Vasilevsky, Shashirkin, Sorokin, Hellebuck, uh, Jake Ottinger, who I think is the real deal, and Yuki Soros, then, then it's, it's just crapshoot, right? So yeah. you have some really good goalies that didn't make the cut that easily could have been above um, Markstrom or Gibson. I think Vasilevsky Demko is one of them. I think uh, Ilya Samsonov could be one of them based on his numbers this year. I think Freddie Anderson should definitely be one of them. Um, and that might just be by a virtue of him being injured, you know, to not make the list. But once you get past those first six, it's like, all right, let's, let's just throw some names in a hat. And at least that's how it felt reading the service. Do you think there will be any goalie trades ahead of the deadline? I know some teams aren't completely comfortable with their goaltending, but these, these trades ahead of the deadline, I mean, obviously in Vancouver, we've talked about the possibility of Thatcher Demko getting traded and the team that we've, uh, we've, we've talked about the most is probably the LA Kings. Uh, but can you see any other teams uh, making a move to, to address their goaltending heading into the playoffs? I mean, there's always the possibility. I, I, I mean, for example, you look at a team that's a, a clear contender in Carolina, like they, they don't really have a need for Ante Ranta if Anderson's healthy because of, of the depth in their goalie situation. And so, like, are they looking to maybe flip them somewhere else? I don't know. Uh, there's always the possibility of your James Reimers and people like that moving for extra goaltending depth. I don't necessarily know if there's a game changer that's going to be available for anybody that needs help in the goaltending department. And there are a few. I mean, you look at, you know, is Vegas super happy with where they are, you know, goaltending-wise? Obviously, Logan Thompson's played really well, but do they need something else there? I mean, I... There are teams that are in, in need, but I'm not quite sure what the supply and demand of it is going to end up looking like as we, as we get to the deadline. We're speaking to Greg Wyshynski from ESPN here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650K. Greg, i got a lot of things I want to get into here. Scrolling oh, through your timeline, uh, this uh -oh. is an interesting one. 
Uh, you spoke with some of the players. We talked about this last week, but it kind of got lost in the shuffle with Super Bowl week. You spoke with a bunch of players about soon-to-be formally announced NHLPA Executive Director Marty Walsh. We spent a lot of time talking about him last week. Uh, what did what did you glean from speaking with the players about the guy that is eventually going to be named as a successor to Donald Fear? Yeah, I mean, it was just sort of informal. It was, it was while doing other reporting. Uh, and then, I, of course, as this thing usually does, you, you hear from other people after I, I tweeted that, <laughs> that kind of went further and confirmed some of the stuff that I was reporting. But the, the gist I get is that they really like his direct way of communicating. Um, Don Fear was a lot of things as a labor leader. Direct was not necessarily one of them. Right. Uh, I had one person tell me that it was like listening to someone speak in riddles sometimes when he would address the uh, the union, which is not necessarily one of, what you want to hear. Um, so I think the Marty Walsh part, he's like a Boston guy with a thick Boston accent. Uh, he, he apparently just has a better way of communicating some of these issues to the players. They like the fact that he's forward thinking. I think there's been a lot of discussion about how the players can, can monetize their likenesses and images and, and try to create more avenues for them to make some money. I, I think the union's going to be a big part of that going forward. Um, and then you got to remember the other thing too about Walsh is that like, he does come from a hockey background in the sense that he's a fan. He's a former Bruins season ticket holder. He gets the sport in a way that, dare I say, that Don Fear didn't. There was a huge learning curve for Don Fear, um, and so and, and continued to be. And so I think the hope here is that you got a hockey guy that understands hockey players, and you have someone with with the kind of labor background and the kind of political background where he's not going to just do a round or two of of meet and greets with these guys and then be okay with it, which is kind of how what happened with fear over the years. I think there's the hope that he's going to stay engaged and, and engage a lot of these players and hopefully engage the younger players. That's really the, the union's big issue. It, not only like recently, but in history is you have a bunch of guys that are like 32 making all the decisions. And, right. and the only way that you're going to really be able to impact and affect change is if you can, you can grow a younger group of players who honestly should be more engaged because it's their future, right? Like these guys are all looking at the sunset, making some of these decisions. Like Connor McDavid should be, you know, Che Guevara, <laughs> like mm-hmm. when it comes to this labor movement based on like how much money the salary cap is costing him in salary compared to the leading star in other sports. What are some of the first things that like, what are you, you mentioned that the players want to monetize uh, themselves, their name and likeness more, what about some of the issues that the NHLPA will have with the NHL? I imagine there's a conversation to be had between the union and the, and the league about the salary cap for next season, for example. Well, there is, and, and they're still trying to figure that out. I, I don't know if the, if the union, last time I checked, I don't know if the union's engaged with the NHL on, on trying to find middle ground. For those that don't know, like the NHL originally said that the, uh, the cap was going to have a huge spike next year based on the, the revenue numbers they were looking at. And they kind of revised those numbers to say, actually, it probably isn't going to hit where it needs to hit before the beginning of next season. And so the thought was that the league and the players could work together to artificially bring the salary cap up a little bit more than it should. Um, that remains to be seen, but you'd hope that that's something that could happen uh, for, by, for, 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 to make the offseason more fun. But as far as like the bigger picture issues go, I mean, you are talking about Again, the monetization of, of, of marketing for the athletes. Um, you're talking about the health aspect. I think you know there's going to be a revisiting of the Jack Eichel situation in, in the next CBA. 
to kind of get more clarity on players' rights for their own health, not only as players, but beyond their playing days. So things like that. I, I don't know if there's necessarily the appetite to go to war over the salary cap. I got to be honest with you. Like, you know, that's, it takes a massive movement and, and cohesion amongst these players to try to impact that kind of change. And you got to be prepared to sit out a year. Like <laughs> that's just it. And I don't know if any, I don't, one, I don't know if there's an appetite to do that. Mm-hmm. And then two, it's really, really hard to get all these NHL, uh, NHL players on the same page. Like it is such a massive undertaking everybody's got their own interests. Yeah. You're de- dealing with different nationalities and, and, and those different nationalities approach a union in different ways. Like it's, it's the most difficult job to try to get everybody on the same page for a big, you know, push uh, towards uh, changing something in the CBA. And that's why that's one reason why I don't think it's, 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 it's going to happen or, or it has happened in the last like 15 years. Wish when are the coyotes going to trade chicken when they get the, the offer that they want. I mean, so they've been talking to the LA Kings. That's no secret. Um, I reported this yesterday that the, the Kings had offered Gabe Velarde in a first last summer for Chikrin. That didn't get it done. I, I think it's pretty clear. There's a couple of things from what I've been able to glean that are happening right now. One is, has been reported by, by I think both Elliot Friedman and Chris Johnson. Like there's another contract in the deal that they're trying to figure out what to do with. Um, it could easily be Peterson, you know, if you're reading the tea leaves as far as like what the Kings might be trying to offload based on how good Phoenix Copley's been for them. Um, so that's one aspect. And the other aspect too is like, it's pretty clear that the Coyotes are looking for one of their top, top, tippy top prospects to go along with that first round pick that they want in the deal. And, and that means Brant Clark, that, that could mean Quentin Byfield. And like those I, I've, I've been told from people around the Kings are, are untouchables. So unless they're playing a game of chicken when it comes to a guy like Clark, um, it may have to be that the that Coyotes like bring their tear down a little bit to get another guy, like an Alex Turcotte, for example. Um, but it's it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. I, I think I think Chikrin's perfect for the Kings for what they're looking for. I mean, not only the the, the age, but the contract, um, and and you start to wonder like who has the ticking clock here? It's probably not the Coyotes. It's probably the team that still sees a window to win with Kopitar, with Doughty, and that window is, is, is closing, right? So, like, they, they could use the Jacob Trickrin of it all right now to improve this team. Plus, you got to remember, boys, like, this is in keeping with the, with the LA Kings' modus operandi. When they won those cups, they won it because they were willing to trade top prospects yeah. for Jeff Carter, top prospects for Mike Richards. Like, this is straight out of the Dean Lombardi playbook, and, and Rob Blake obviously learned under Dean. So it's it's going to be interesting to see if they repeat that pattern because I think I think they're primed for it. It's the reason you build a really robust farm you know farm system and, and prospect pool is because one you can get cheap labor and then hopefully those guys turn out to be stars. But two, you you could package them together and get a player like Jacob Chikrin. You know the other interesting part of this is that there's still a long way to go until the trade deadline. Like Arizona seems not worried at all about timing or anything. They've shut Chikrin down. They said they're going to shut him down for at least a week. They have seven games left until the deadline. Did you see the Blue Jackets are doing the same with Gavrikov? We've, enter- we've entered a brave new world where everyone's like, you know what? Why don't we just not play this guy? Yeah, Luke, then- Luke Shen's still out there blocking shots, though. See, this is a problem. <laughs> yeah, right. This is a problem for Vancouver. Because it was funny because uh, I think uh, it was actually came after Andre Turnier uh, played um, Chikrin close to 30 minutes in a game. And then I think they got the call from Bill Armstrong. He's like, we're not doing that anymore. 
And I'm going to take that decision solely out of your hands. So all these guys are just sitting around now. I wonder if this is going to be the sort of new NHL where they just, you know, because there's always that sort of pride and honor of going out there and playing every night. But it makes zero sense from asset protection standpoint because there is a risk that the guy's going to get hurt. Now we got two different teams doing this, just sitting yeah, the guy and, down. And, yeah. and that's that's okay if, if, if there's immediacy to it. Like if the Blue Jackets shut down – their guy for like two weeks, uh, you know, ahead of the trade deadline. Like, what are you doing? I mean, that's, that's kind of not fair to the player in Chickren's case. He's been asking out of Arizona for yeah. over a year. He's fine. With if, it. If, 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 if the toll you have to pay is sit for a while. I mean, if I'm Jacob Chickren, I'm, I, I'm like binging stranger things. Like I'm not even paying attention to hockey. <laughs> I'm like, this is fine. If this is how it has to work by all means, you know, do the work and get me out of here. Wish. Uh, this was great today, man. Thanks a lot for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. Oh, before we leave, are you going to the outdoor game in Carolina on the weekend? Yeah, I am. It should be a lot of fun. I, the, 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 the artist rendering for the, the field and the stage and stuff is really cool. They're going to have, like, NC State students on the field as sort of a student section. I guess that's the new thing between the, the uh, Arizona State University rank and, and this. It's like we all want student sections now, which is kind of fun. So it should be fun. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Oh, by the way, my column on Friday is, look out for that. It's going to be all about the stadium series and kind of the history of, of the Winter Classic's weird younger brother. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a, a, an odd part of like recent NHL history, but I'm kind of infatuated with it. Are the Carolina fans going to be able to see Ovi? Because I see he's away on a personal matter. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, he's, he's, out, he's out for a little bit for uh, personal reasons. I guess he's got like a, a family member uh, that he's, he's got to deal with uh, health-wise. So I don't know. That, that's a really good question. And, and obviously like... It's a pretty big signature game. Yeah, You'd want him out there, but but if he's got something going on in, his, in in the home life, then you know that takes precedent over everything. Okay, wish have fun at the outdoor game. We will uh, talk next week. We'll get your thoughts on the matter. And uh, thanks as always for doing this. We really appreciate it. You got it. Take care. Thanks, See you later. Uh, Greg Wyshynski from ESPN here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Do you like emotional tributes? Do you like love songs? Do you like creepy endings? If so. Stick around for the final hour of Halford and Bruff. Two more on the playlist of love. Jason Bruff's annual Valentine's Day playlist rolls on in the 8 o'clock hour. We'll also have Thomas Drance on the program. We will also do what we learn. Big final hour. Don't go anywhere. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650.